Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Murray Calder, One of the finest strategic minds in the industry, Murray learned his craft managing internationally renowned Scotch whiskey brands like the Macallan, Highland Park and the famous Grouse, where he oversaw the global relaunch. He's been with Mediacom Edinburgh since 2006, where he is currently strategy director. And numerous honours bestowed on his bonds include a period as chairman for the IPA in Scotland. But arguably trumping all of this is the fact he's the first call to action guest to have had a previous show dedicated to them. And it's due to JP Hansen's recommendation that I am now saying, welcome to the show, Murray. Thanks very much. Nice to be on it. Quick fire questions. Coffee or tea? Tea. Book or Facebook? Book. Vinyl or MP3? Vinyl. Robert Burns or Robert the Bruce? Oh, that's a tough one for a Scotsman, isn't it? Yeah. Robert Burns, (laughs) I think. Burns, I think. Another one coming up then. Sean Connery or Billy Connolly? Oh, Billy. And this one's ridiculous, so apologies. But bagpipes or bagpuss? Oh, I was a massive fan of bagpuss when I was a kid. <laughs> Johnny Walker or Johnny Cash? Oh, Johnny Cash. Nice. And mountains or sea? Oh, God, that's impossible. I live by the sea, but I love the mountains. Can I have both? No. Oh, mountains then. <laughs> you can. You can have both. I'd rather, be, I'd rather be on the mountains than in the sea, put it that way. So... so I think it's important to hear that talented people in our industry don't always take that short, straight path from school or college straight to career. So how did you end up as a marketer and did you have any weird, odd, rogue jobs beforehand? Yeah, I think the simple answer is completely by random. I mean, I don't think, I certainly didn't have any plan then to become a marketeer. I'm not entirely sure I've got a plan at the moment, but I guess like, like most people, I, I started off as a paper boy. <laughs> so school jobs, you know, paper boy. I, th- I think although that was really to, that was really to fun skiing. Um, in fact, most of the most of the jobs I had uh, when I when I was you know, I think before I graduated from university were entirely to fund going skiing. Up to the point where I took a job as a ski instructor in Scotland um, because it was the only way I could afford to ski because it is not a cheap sport to be honest um, but no I didn't I didn't do a marketing degree I didn't uh, have a plan to work in marketing I when I left university I um, joined uh, Ainsley Insurance who were the student insurers still are a student insurance probably as a management in a management trainee scheme which I failed miserably at um, I just I was no good at it at all so selling insurance over the counter wasn't for me uh, and then, and this was, I mean, it was foolish because I should have stuck in a bit more because it was right in the teeth of a recession uh, in the early 90s. And so I was unemployed for quite a long time, which was great because I had lots of time to go rock climbing and spend time in the mountains. Uh, but I was applying for, I don't know, 50 jobs a week uh, in the days when jobs were advertised in the back of the newspaper. I'd send a letter off to almost anything that I was even, in fact, things I wasn't even vaguely qualified for. 
And I finally got an interview for a, a job, which I still remember the advert, which was Person Friday for Busy Friendly Office, um, which turned out to be uh, uh, a company called the McAllen Langs Partnership, which was a joint venture between the McAllen Glenlivet PLC and Lang Brothers, um, both Scotch whisky companies, and was basically a, a, a drinks distributor uh, based in Glasgow. So distributed McAllen products, Lang Brothers products, but also um, Heidsick Champagnes, um, Faustino Wines, a couple other bits and pieces, uh, and Galliano. Uh, and I suppose that I guess the first job I had in marketing um, was a was a side project as a, as Person Friday, IT boy, um, to do to do a, to come up with a marketing project for Galliano um, in Scottish ski resorts. Would you? Could you? It's, it's almost inconceivable to even say that. Um, <laughs> but I was I was very fortunate that that, that Robin uh, Lambie, who is the marketing director at McCann Lang's partnership, um, gave me the chance to do that. And I and I found doing that that oh actually this is quite interesting. Um, and it's kind of stretched my mind a little bit and made me stop and think that this might be something I could be interested in. So I guess that was a, that was the very first thing. But not very long after that happened, McCann McCallan uh, Lang's partnership folded, um, was dissolved and um, Robin headed back up to McAllen Glenlivet PLC on Speyside, and um, I'd obviously done enough <laughs> with the Galliano project to to end up being offered a job uh, up in at McAllen, um, and so I moved up to Speyside, um, where I didn't do any marketing for a couple of years, ah. but um, um, I did you know dry goods ordering. I worked in the distillery itself. I was a tour guide in the distillery. I arranged the export shipping. I did pretty much all of the jobs except marketing at, right. the, at the distillery for a couple of years. Um, which was a fantastic grounding in knowing about whiskey and knowing about the product that I ended up, um, I guess, kind of eventually was given the opportunity to become market assistant for McAllen. So uh, there you go. Wow. So how, how did you take that set? I was going to say sidestep, but it's, it's much bigger than a sidestep into covering every other role and then going into marketing. Um, well, I guess I guess I was at the time I was just really happy to have a job. Um, I mean, lots of my friends didn't have jobs. It was pretty. It was pretty rough back then. Um, like it is now, I think for 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 new graduates, you know, there's there's not a lot out there, it's, and it's it's hard to find your your first chance. And so I think I had enjoyed, you know, the eighteen months or so I'd been at, at McAllen uh, Langs, and had you know big, had kind of got into a bit interested in drinks, um, other than you know the, the student interest that I had in drinks before then. Um, and so the the, th- the chance to go and um, work in a distillery was actually quite interesting not only that i mean i'd actually grown up in the northeast for for large parts of my life so it was a part of the country i knew so i wasn't going in completely blind to to that part of the world um and the distillery is in a beautiful part of the country um it is you know it's a well-respected distillery and this was right at, i mean this was probably right at the height of mccallan glenlivet plc's powers um shortly before the takeover by highland distillers and and you know i was working with some of the best people in the business and i still say today you know i i, I learned so much, um, not just at McAllen and Livet, but subsequently at Highland and then at Edrington from from some of the best people I think in marketing, and certainly the best people in drinks marketing. Um, mm. So I, you know, I think the, the the sideways step, I think was actually a good thing, you know, to to have such a fundamental understanding of the product that you're marketing. Um, I mean, I I do come across people occasionally today who who, you know don't seem to know as much about their product and where it comes from and how it's made and, and as, as you might expect. And I think that, mm. you know, and I think that's so actually, you know, being in the distillery, you know, taking, you know, foreign journalists around the distillery and explaining to them, 
in German why Callan was better than other distil- other distillers because of X, Y, and Z was a you know was a real proper grounding and understanding product, uh, which at the end of the day is is the foundation of everything we do in marketing and advertising. It's like you know there is no product, there's nothing to market or advertise. So and I think we we often forget that. Um, and, and we, you know, yeah. I, I see an awful lot of marketing and advertising trying to make up for the fact that nobody's really thought about the product very much. And and I, I guess, you know, I was very lucky to work at Scotch Whiskey, where actually the product is pretty sacrosanct, um, or at least certainly was at that time, anyway. So with with that experience in the in the whiskey world and, and industry, can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of marketing in such a regulated? arena because i think too many are unclear on the restrictions alcohol brands face not to mention you know potential moral questions that can arise so what were those challenges oh goodness it's funny i'm not sure that at the time it's interesting it's a matter of perspective isn't it or or state of mind is that you know you didn't i didn't really look at it from a perspective of pros and cons and and, you know you, you look at it from the perspective of actually these are constraints on what we can do and that actually makes you think harder about what you can do You've got to be really creative to get around some of those things. So I mean, yeah, you know, there are, yes, there are there are moral questions, particularly in in you know in some cultures more than in others, and and you know that international aspect is quite important to remember. So, um, you know, there, there are huge high barriers to entry, um, in 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 whiskey. You know, you can't just suddenly start making Scotch whiskey. There's quite a lot of, you know, you have to have a distillery for starters. Um, you there you've got to wait for at least three years in for malt generally 10 or 12 um so they're quite there's actually quite restricted competition and that's in that sense actually you you kind of know who your competitors are and they're, they're not an awful they're, well, at least at that point uh, there are there weren't an awful lot of new entrants to market um so i guess that's a pro um and a lot of international markets you know there were high tariffs so actually uh, you know you could look at that as okay that's a that's that's depressing our sales but actually in, if you look at it from another perspective actually that creates aspiration it creates scarcity of demand and you know we kind of we all want things we can't have yeah. and so from an image perspective it created it creates massive opportunities from a marketing perspective and i guess the you know the the fact that you know so much of the cost of a bottle of whiskey almost whatever you are is actually cost of goods and tax means that actually the margins might not be what you think you are and actually therefore the budget scale and spending if you look at the you know i mean yes there are big budgets in in, in whiskey brands but compared to um a lot of big fmcg brands they are very small and so actually those restrictions force you to to think about innovation in 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 a you know far more focused way you've got to be really really clear about what you're spending your money on and i think i think probably the thing i the major pro i that at least from a personal perspective that i had from working in the whiskey industry was the um the level of financial scrutiny and financial management of brands really kind of gave me a phenomenal grounding in how to understand what marketing should and shouldn't be trying to do in, in a business sense and not just in a, in a you know and too much of marketing now i think is is um looked at as a you know marketing as comms well that's only a tiny part of it um mm-hmm. and actually you know when you when you when you're looking at this from a full PL perspective it makes you stop and think a little bit more about um, the other parts of the marketing mix and what you need to do to to make sure that when you get to the point of briefing comms you've got all the rest of the um the rest of the pieces lined up in, in place to make sure you make the most of that investment I couldn't agree more we've we've touched on um the perception that marketing is just comms uh, in a, in a couple of previous episodes both with um, frederick halberg and and jp hansen more so the consistency there is we is we regularly conclude there's a there's a real lack of strategy in in, in marketing mm-hmm. nowadays. 
Um, we started calling it the Shergar of marketing here because we just <laughs> we got no idea where it's gone. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners then, firstly, what is strategy to you? And secondly, how do you go about creating one? Oh, okay. Um, big question. What is strategy? I think, I, I mean... I, so I've gone straight in with these big questions. Apologies. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fine. Yeah, so what is strategy? I think uh, at its best, it's a, it's a decision-making tool. That's what it is. It's a, it's, yeah. a, it's a tool that allows you to decide, make this, don't make that, do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that, spend this, don't spend that, spend it here, don't spend it there. Um, and it should really be the, the 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 touchstone that you keep coming back to in, in all of your marketing efforts, and and I, and I mean marketing in its broadest sense. So you know, it's a it's, should we um, you know should we milk this brand or should we um, invest in it? Do we is there um, is there an opportunity for us to ex- extend this brand through new product development? And if so, what type of new product development? And does that is that something that works for us or doesn't work for us which market should we be in which people should we be marketing to i mean all of these things are are, are derived from strategy and so i, I think well conceived and expressed strategy makes it easy to make decisions that, that for me is what is at the heart of good strategy i think i'm at risk of um potentially offending previous guests but that's that's right up there with my favorite ever explanation of what a strategy is i think mostly because You've said it's do this, but don't do that. And it's the don't bit that people forget about. It's normally let's do this, let's do a bit of that. And and uh, you know, even even when it comes to targeting these people, strategy should say also we're not targeting these people or this segment. Absolutely, I, I think um, yeah. I mean, I think so much of what I, what we see in marketing and and advertising these days is additive. It's a what else can we do? Um, and actually. W- I mean, I'm I'm quite reductionist in my in my approach in any case, and it's, it's that you know it's back to that you know, you know I didn't have time to make the shorter stuff. Um, mm. Is actually how how can you make this simple you know as, as simple as it needs to be and no simpler, um, but certainly no more complicated. And I think that's the that's getting to a simple expression of your strategy makes it easier for you to decide the things that you don't do. Um, and I, actually, that's that's an interesting flip of the way that quite often people look at it is actually thinking what are the things we shouldn't do as opposed to constantly looking for the more, more things for more things to do. Yeah, and, and, and equally, that's um, it's a really wanky word, but that's really empowering for a brand to say, well, let's switch this off. We don't need to be doing that. Your point about keeping it simple and the whole, I wouldn't write it, I would have written a shorter letter, but I didn't have time. And there's similar quotes attributed to Churchill and all sorts of people, but it, but it's so very true. And that's, that importance of clarity is something I know you've talked about previously, especially in briefs. Um, so I know it's not necessarily the same point, but that importance of simplicity and clarity is key. And am I right in thinking you used to run briefs past your mum and dad, and if they didn't, <laughs> if they didn't, if they didn't get it, it, it needed to, it, it wasn't right. Yeah, brief. Well, briefs and, and more often presentations, um, particularly if I was going to go and present to a, a, a board, um, either my own when I was working client side or or somebody else's when I was when I, when I moved client uh, agency side. Um, you know, it's that. It, we are, as an industry, we are terrible for filling space with shit, <laughs> proper bullshit. Do you know, and you look at some of the words. The words that are used are words that you would never use in a general conversation with somebody. Um, and I think that you know, we 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 forget that um, we forget often that the people that we're speaking to, and I use people advisedly um, in agencies and client side, and and I and consumers. Um, they're people, right? And they're people like you and me who go down the pub and have a chat about stuff in words of one syllable. 
Now that's not. I'm not. I'm not in, in no way being anti-intellectual here. And there's certainly a place for the the, the intellectualism that comes of, of deep thought and and flow and understanding um, the fundamentals of of mental models that can help you uh, describe things. But you need to try and express that in a way that that anybody can understand. And the simpler and the easier it is to understand, the clearer um, the brief is, and therefore the more likely it is you will get an outcome that suits what you're trying to achieve. I see briefs that are pages long, filled with all sorts of stuff. If you've got everything in the brief, you can answer with everything. You know, there is no there's no clarity there in terms of what is required in order to answer this. And I think that's the you know the first you know there's 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 a lot of good stuff kicking about um recently and I've seen quite a lot of people talking about this is that you know be very clear on what your problem is. Um mm. be make your strategy simple. Uh, and that will help you build out um the tactics that you need in order to to achieve to achieve your goals in its basic state any piece of communication is is going from a to b and and, and the, the more words or the more jargon whatever it is that you put in there is just lengthening that distance for that communication so we talk here internally about trimming the fat when it comes to especially copywriting if you can take a word out and it still makes sense it shouldn't have been there or it doesn't really add anything you know pretty basic stuff but the same is true with any piece of communication you want something to be received by a person or whoever whatever the entity is so keep that short and simple. Otherwise, you're making it either take longer or yep. appear ambiguous. And it, and it sounds so simple. This stuff always sounds really simple when you say it out loud. But actually, if you take a look around you and see what um, what the output is, it's as if they they forget. Yeah, I don't. I mean, there's, I'm sure that's that's an element of it. But I think you know, there's there's almost a there's a there's a I don't know whether it's a human need or what it is, but there's a you know, we we want to show our workings. Um, and I think especially if you're a if you're a agency presenting to a client or if you're a client presenting to their board, there's sometimes sometimes there, you end up trying to show that you've done some work, um, as opposed to showing that you have a clarity clarity of thought and uh, an answer that will meet the needs that you currently have as a business. Um, and so there there tends you know there, there tends to be a, a an impetus towards creating lots of stuff because we're being paid for this or uh, I'm being made to justify myself to my board for this investment I have to make. So I have to demonstrate that I've done a lot of thinking. I've done a lot of work, but actually, you know, I think that that's a misunderstanding of, of what thought should be. The more thought you put into it, the simpler you should be able to make it. Um, I mean, and, I'm, and I'll put my hands up. I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. I, I you know, quite often I'll, I'll, I'll over, over-engineer something, uh, the, certainly the first time round. But um, I, I do kind of often try and remind myself and those around me that, that look, look, what can we take out of this to make it as, as clear and compelling as we possibly can. Presumably that was very effective for you to get mum and dad or, or whoever it may have been to read the brief and, and feedback. Yeah, yeah, well, I think, yeah, I mean, my, my, my dad's a civil engineer. Um, my mother was a teacher, um, and latterly a principal teacher of, of learning support. And and so I think they, I was very fortunate in that I had people who were very, well, one very straight talking engineer and another person <laughs> who understands the importance of making things simple for people to to, to understand them. So um, they were great in that sense. And my dad would tell me that's a load of bollocks. Uh, and my yeah. mum would go, you know, actually, why are you using words like that when you could be using words like this? Um, but I think I think it's a it's good practice. Even even if you even if you don't go outside your work group or your agency or or etc., is to find somebody who's not working on that piece of business, um, yeah. who 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 isn't dealing with who doesn't have the baggage that you have in dealing with that client or that problem or that brand, and get them to look at it and say, well, that doesn't make sense or. Um, or you know, this is what what you're actually trying to say here because it's flabby. 
Um, so, so even even a five minute, you know, I, I'm kind of off, often trying as I as I develop presentations or briefs, etc., getting other people involved. And I think there's a, you know, a lot of people and myself, myself included, um, when I was when I was younger. Um, not in fact, not that much younger. Um, a tendency to to hold on to stuff and try and do it all myself. Um, and actually, yeah. there's real power in, in in accepting that you don't have all the answers and that you you, you need outside input and stimulus and um, and criticism to make your work the best it can be. You use that you use the term there, saying something was flabby. I think it's a great um, great way of describing something. And it's good, in fact, really, that you you said it was your dad who would give you that no nonsense feedback yeah i had a great metaphor for a successful agency client relationship recently and it was that the the agency should be less like your mum or your nan where everything's great and lovely and yes they agree and more like your um like a personal trainer at the gym who challenged you to make hard decisions but ultimately there was success in in, in whatever guys it took so having that refreshing no nonsense feedback is is so important and whether that's a conversation with your dad over a brief or just a conversation with a client if you're saying the same stuff as someone else then one of you's redundant yeah well that's a good that's a really good point and i, and I think that i mean that, that that's one of the think fundamentals i think about good client agency relationships is that there is a level of trust and honesty there that allows that type of discussion and conversation to take place um so that you, you don't feel as if you have to pull your punches that you can be honest about the feelings you have about something and and you know quite often feelings are are just as if not often more important than the rational thinking that you've 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 got about a proposal or a, or something you've got to say to your boss so so stop and think about those things and and so I, I guess the you know one of the fundamental things that's occurred to me relatively recently is is that actually the the first and probably most important task that anybody responsible for client agency relationships on both sides of that relationship is about creating a a safe space, a place where people can be honest and open about the challenges that they're facing. Wise words. Now, you studied economics at the University of Glasgow. So you've got a, a solid training to touch on the role of economists in, in agencies. And yet there's various quotes I could put to you. One of my favourites is, is from Rory Sutherland, who says marketing is the science of understanding what economists are wrong about. I suppose what I, what I want to understand more and more specifically is various commentators and, and industry experts have concluded that a lot of the problems in the industry are because we've got economists running agencies who do everything by spreadsheet. What's your take on that as a um, reflection of the state of the industry and, and that preceding quote of Rory's? First of all, it's probably worth pointing out that... Um, I- Saying I studied economics might be pushing it a little bit, given uh, <laughs> given the degree I got and the fun I had at university. But so, but anyway, um, and, I, and I think there's probably and, and I think there's a difference between studying economics and being an economist. And I think there's also a difference between being an economist and being the type of person who is running a, a multinational group of agencies. Accountants are not economists. Economists are not accountants. Um, and so, you know, counting numbers is one thing. And economics is actually the study of how scarce resources are managed. It's, it's kind of how do you, how do you, how do you create the most utility from the resources you have at your command? Whether those resources are financial or are people resources or or you know raw materials or whatever those are. Um, and I think the thing that I mean, and, and Rory has a point. 
in that um, I think historically classical economics was quite maths and models based and really didn't take any account of observed behavior. It assumes all sorts of things which are which are entirely untrue about how people make decisions. And I guess, and Rory comes from that perspective, and rightly so, because of his um, interest and, and knowledge of behavioral economics and, and how important that has become in the industry. And so I, I think there's a, there's a big difference between what e- economics was, even when I was studying at university, what economics is now, and behavioral economics, uh, and how those things have changed over time. So I think the I guess the only bit I take issue with in, in, in Rory's thing is is that is, is is marketing a science. So there's a you know there's there's an art to it as well I think. Um, so I think it's not an it's not an and I think that we we often get into these binary discussions and I think it's another thing the industry is terrible um, for is creating binary, false binary um, things that, that that just they don't move things forward. They create they create conflict where there really isn't any because actually it's both art and science, um, and a lot of what we do. Um, and I think um, who was it? Somebody somebody posted something the other day that I, I, I totally bought into, which is that we are just you know a lot of us are just making it up as we go along. Um, yeah, we're, we're making informed guesses. Um, I think it was Bob Hoffman blog this week. Bob, that's, that's, that's right. Yes, it was Bob this week. His piece, his piece this week, which was, I thought was bang on, right? Which is, you know, there are, there are, there's a, there's a lot. We know a lot more now than we did. I mean, I was very fortunate when I was in the whiskey industry that um, we were, you know, Edrington or Highland, I think it probably was before before Edrington days. I can't remember which which order, but um, we were one of the first people to buy into the the Ehrenberg Bass studies work that was coming out in a big way, uh, and so I can I came into contact with that. Quite early on uh, in my career, which was fortunate, but I think that that was always balanced with the understanding that we're talking about people, and no matter how much data, no matter how much uh, how good your spreadsheet or your model is, we're dealing with people. Uh, people are too complex, and you know, especially a, a lot of people, is such a chaotic system that no model can account for what's going to happen. And so, a, a bit of it has to be done with gut feel as much as it has to be done with with data. And so, I think that's the I think we're, we've created another false binary between uh, it's either it's either you know a creative director who's who's creating a phenomenal piece of art, or it's a, a media planner who's using a model to decide where X and Y happen, and it's clearly a combination of the both. And 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 actually, all of the best work I've ever been involved in, both client side and agency side, has been where there's been a true partnership between both sides of that um, supposedly binary thing. Um, yeah. It's where it's where you've got a you know got a super creative um, creative agency. You've got a really nailed on media agency, but but both can see each other's perspective, and a client who is prepared to listen to both sides of that argument and make decisions based on uh, their knowledge of their brand and the people they're trying to uh, sell their brand to. And actually, getting those getting those three parts of things together is 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 magic when it happens. It really is. I think the term false binary actually articulates it perfectly because as you say it applies to so much and things are so rarely black or white it's always a shade of gray somewhere it depends right um yeah it's and, exactly that exactly that um i think there's another piece uh, there's another piece today i haven't had a chance to read it yet but I, I, the, the gist of it i'm getting is that you know we we are very good at reinforcing you know we'll latch onto a model or or a or a, or a piece of insight and we'll we're very good at reinforcing that because that becomes the the truth the truth um and um, those things become reinforced. In fact, JP, I think, was talking about this. Is like you know, if you look at business, but everybody using the same business books means that you end up having the every having the same opinion about the same stuff, the same stuff, and that creates zero competitive advantage. So, how do you 
how how do you actually um, take the best of take the best of what's out there, um, but actually apply that in a way that um, allows for creativity and allows for the specifics of the context that you're operating in, whether that's the context of yeah. the brand you have or the context of the market you're in or the context of the people you're trying to sell to. Yeah, it's a great point by JP. I think he shared that on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. I, mean, I do remember yeah. seeing that. And whether you're of the we should be distinct or we should be different camp or you know somewhere in between, which is probably where most people are or should be, if you're all starting with the same ingredients and in this form he's talking about all the, all the same type of education, it's the same input, then, then how is the output going to be distinct or different or both? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you know, there's only there are only so many there are only so many shades of brown you can make from that, that set of colours, right? So yeah, you know, actually, what you want is something a bit brighter than that. Yes, um, I have to thank Dave Trot for sharing this quote with us earlier. We were desperately trying to find who to attribute this quote to. It was made by John Ward, and he said that advertising is a craft executed by people who aspire to be artists but assessed by those who aspire to be scientists. <laughs> so that's not another deliberate prod at accountants and economists, but I do think there there's something there. Again, it's not binary, but I do think there's there, there's something there. Yeah, that's a great that's a great quote actually. And I think that's that's the I guess that's the that's the um really great account people are the people who can translate between those two camps. They they are the people who can, you know, um take what the accountant thinks and distill it into something that inspires a creative and in the same way can take what a creative um, delivers and inspire people who are looking at numbers with it to the point where actually suddenly they can see where those numbers lead to if you think like this um so yeah it's a, that, that, that's that's a that's a great quote I like that a lot yeah and it's interesting you were saying you, you adopted the finding the Ehrenberg bass and school of thought early on but exactly as you also then went on to say is you can't simply replicate models i think one thing that's becoming abundantly clear as we record more episodes is i simply just regurgitate wiser people's stuff and <laughs> hope it reflects on, on me of course it doesn't but we've got quotes from the likes of ogilvy and burnback and all the greats literally printed as posters dotted around our office and, and and one of them is specifically that people are so complex that for whatever reason something might have worked previously that could be the reason why it doesn't work again if you were to replicate it simply because you've lost that impact or that feeling of new so to take a model and replicate it whether we're discussing the benefits of i don't know digital or what's perceived as traditional i think it all a lot of it comes back to that point which is why rory's work and the other works of the, you know like richard Schotter and all, and all the um very wise people working in the behavioural economics and psychology space need to be uh, understood and taken seriously. I totally agree. I mean, I think you, you, when you, see, but you see it even in creative work or, or in, in, in media planning, is that, you know, somebody does something new and different and suddenly in the next year, everybody has reimagined um, that that model, you know? So the way that, mm. um, I don't know, somebody was talking earlier, there was, you know, the, the, that, you know, you know, copywriting, it was Sam Brayley, I think, he was talking about the, you know, just just um, grammar isn't necessarily the rule that a copywriter should follow. Otherwise, think different would never have occurred. And then there was a discussion around that, which was which was yeah. But then but then that's that you know we we've got to blame that for us this the the nounification of stuff. And you go like, well, you know, yes, but that's that's not the fault of the people who first came up with that idea. That's the fault of the people who didn't have an idea after it. And. Yeah. You know, so it's it's very easy to copy and and hope that because it has worked for other people, it will work for you. And of course, the more people that 
do the same thing, the less distinctive and different it becomes. And so, and the less distinctive and different it becomes, as we know, the less effective it is. So, you know, that's the, that's that's a, a real kind of imperative towards um, innovative thought and innovative action. So. Yeah. yeah, Tom Roach uh, and his motley crew at BBH Labs made a very similar observation recently looking at uh, challenger banks um, mm. and people operating in, in that space. And he picked out one, showed their advertising and comms and, and especially their outdoor media campaigns. And over the space of 12 months, the amount of other challenger brands popping up and copying them created this sea of sameness. Uh, which is exactly to to your last point is that you something stands out for being different over time everyone copies them and they're all the same so someone needs to be different again it's this kind of ongoing battle for standout yeah and i think and and, and as as you know as the Edinburgh bus stuff will show you that that actually and and we see this you know if if a market leader has done something interesting and innovative and the rest of the people in the market are following it and they spend money behind that that just reinforces the market leader's position because actually the people who because actually that thing is is associated with the market leader and therefore actually reinforcing that thing in the marketplace just creates an even stronger bond for people's in people's minds between the market leader and, and that attribute of the market so we were talking about that today funnily enough uh, looking at a new a client's positioning uh, and what they can kind of own but exactly as you say once you own that thing if someone else starts using that term or that attribute whatever it might be all yeah. you all you're all you're doing in part is is, is promoting your your bigger, often bigger competitor. Yeah, and can you ever truly own something? I mean, how often does that ever happen? No, it's it's very true. There's there's a few examples. I mean, and and again, it's it's based on so much context and the individual. So, mm. an example that we someone in in the agency gave earlier was that when you think of Volvo, for example, you you often think of safe or you associate safety with Volvo, albeit whilst I'm. I haven't driven a Volvo recently. I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're fantastic cars. I, I I do know because we've double checked that they're 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 rarely finished first in safety tests when there is a comparison of brands. But because they went to put so much effort to, to to own that association, there's you know I think there's a few examples out there perhaps. Yeah, I, think, I mean Byron would Byron would probably tell you that's you know because they they invested so heavily over such a long period of time in the idea of safety. Um, that that's become you know that they've they've created that that memory link in people's minds so safe equals mm. volvo volvo equals safe um so yeah interesting isn't it that's a... yeah i mentioned in the intro you had a, a spell as chairman for the ipa hmm. can you tell us what that role entails really because i think few of us really have sight of or an understanding of that and and uh, is, is there a highlight of yours during your time there Mm, goodness. Um, so I get. I, I mean, just to, to, to what, what does the role involve? So it's a it's a two year um, stint generally, um, and and it means being uh, certainly in Scotland at least. And uh, there are other regional chairs as well. So so that, and I think that's which is a great initiative from the IPA in order to make it not as, as London centric. I think as perhaps sometimes the industry comes across. Um, but the role of chair in Scotland is to be the spokesperson for the industry in Scotland, and that means. Uh, to government and to the media. It's also about building bridges between advertising and other sectors. Um, and in some respects, it is a I don't know, events convener might be an idea. So not that I did the legwork. Um, there's a, that Sarah and Sonia and in, in, in the IPA team in Scotland did all of the legwork, but it is about thinking about, okay, well, how can we serve the membership best? 
um, by getting, and, and in my instance, that, and I think in most chairs get instances that is about who are the interesting people we can get to come to Scotland and speak to the membership about the things that are important in the industry. Um, and I think, you know, for me, collaboration was the, was the big theme for me in the period that I was there. It's really about um, how do we get people speaking to each other, understanding each other a bit better so that we can create better work um, in Scotland. I mean, we got some we got some really interesting people to speak, um, but I think that probably for me was was uh, was rep representing to government the importance of advertising as a sector within the Scottish economy. Um, it's not really something that you know you know the, the, the Scottish Scottish business thinks mostly about. Um, you know, you know, when you think of Scottish business, you think of engineering and you think of um, you think of whiskey, but actually the creative industries and uh, to a large extent advertising are are are, are huge. Um, and there are some great agencies up here doing great work, and, and and I think representing that to government was probably for me was one of the highlights that that, that I had, was making sure that um, the contribution of the industry was recognised. That's important stuff, increasingly so, I, I believe. We've covered career and, and and kind of work, but what about play? So I know you inherited a lot of wood type, you lucky sod, yep. and you now spend a decent amount of time with prints and print processes and 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 um so on and so forth i do yeah i was i mean i'm very fortunate my wife my wife's a graphic designer and her um her father was a, a printer and typesetter uh, all these days he's he's still alive but he was he's retired now um and we found quite a lot of wood type in his basement which was rotting away um and restored it and bought myself a little press and started playing about with it a year or two ago um and Subsequent to that, I've started um, carving lino and more recently started kind of carving wood blocks to print with wood blocks. Um, and it's one of those, I don't know, it's like, you know, there's a lot to chat about mindfulness, but this is, this is it, it, for me, it's, it's such an endlessly fascinating topic. The endless combinations of type, letters, images, endless possibilities with carving wood, um, endless variations of paper and ink and pressure. Um, so it's a, it's a proper rabbit hole to fall down, but there's something immensely satisfying about working with your hands uh, and actually switching off. So especially when you when you work with your mind all the time and have done for you know all my working life, to now have something that I do with my hands feels really important and actually gives you know and, and there's there's lots of stuff around kind of how your mind works, but actually being able to have that. Um, switch my mind off into kind of idling time actually creates quite a lot of positive outcomes from a in the thinking part of the job as well as in the as well as in the in the printing part of the job so i think it's it's actually really important i think to have something to have an interest that isn't work um, and i think i've probably said and I've, I've 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 made this comment before in, in previous conversations i've had but i think i probably like a lot of us um, hadn't realized how tied up my own self of self-worth and identity was in work and I'd probably kind of over overlinked those two things um, and so it's really nice to have something else that now creates up more of my uh, identity and I'm very careful now to make sure that um, there's more to me than work because actually and I think there's a, there's a great David Ogilvy quote that I came across earlier this year it was around um, speaking to a, a, a copywriter who was in the office too late, I think. And uh, David saying that, that actually, you know, you can only write effectively for two to three hours a day. Um, and part of your job is to spend the rest of your day making yourself interesting enough that people want to read what you're writing. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, which is which is which is a beautiful, uh, which is a really actually beautiful thing around the um, how do you create the right balance between um, understanding the world and taking that understanding and, and making it relevant to the work that you do, because uh, you know we're we're all of us, um, I think, spend far too much time at our desks um, staring at a screen, and I, I'm a big fan. Um, in my work uh, and generally of, of getting up and walking about and going and speaking to people and spending time out doing things uh, because that's where you learn how things work and that's where you can observe people where you can observe people doing the things that you're trying to influence and and so I think that's a really important thing to remember yeah you made some really good points there and your point about remaining interesting similar quote I've I've heard the greatest people know stuff about stuff <laughs> which is yeah. uh, uh, I think I think it's key, and, I, and equally, exactly what you just said. Giving your mind that off state temporarily is so healthy, and maybe I, I like to think it's, it's increasingly hard to do. I, maybe that's just you know it's like a generational thing. We always think, oh, it's harder than it used to be, but it's, you know maybe that's likely bullshit. But I think with uh, with um, you know smartphones and that state of always being on so common it's so difficult to find that time um and that's not an excuse we need to find that time but it's such a good point you made it is an excuse it is an excuse, it is an excuse. yeah i know it's because you made me so depressed because i realized how much <laughs> I, I i don't give myself that time which is a good thing because because uh, i think most of us fall into that trap and your um your prints then i've seen quite a few that you you've shared online they seem to have quite a a, a japanese influence is that a, a fair observation yeah i think i think probably um i've, I've kind of I, i've long been a fan of japan um in fact uh, emma my wife and i went to japan while we were courting um it was kind of one of those formative um trips and, and it's just such a fascinating place um it's such that that juxtaposition of ancient and modern super modern futuristic in fact that it, is just that they've, they've it's a it's a just an endlessly fascinating place um i mean it's had its ups and downs as a nation as a culture but the, the that you know the the, the idea of craft um, and this, you know, the the crafts that have been there for thousands of years being perfected, alongside stuff that you never even imagined was possible. It's just that it's it, I just love that juxtaposition that, that, that in Japan. And 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 so when I started getting into printing and especially into you know carving blocks, that you know Japanese woodblock printing, which I'm a fan. I mean, I'm a big fan of like graphic art in any case. So that the, the way that that is produced and the way that it, and the effects that it creates really appeals to me from an aesthetic perspective. But the what what makes it stick with me is that is the craft that is behind that. And, and I'm totally fascinated by it. And I, um, I'm in no way, shape or form anywhere near um, delivering something like that. But it's a, as an aspiration, I think it's a, it's, a great, it's a great thing to say, look, one day, if I stick at this, maybe I'll, I'll you know, make something that is a, looks like a poor imitation of some of that. And I know you mentioned your wife there. So I know you've recently opened, or, or perhaps I should say, sorry, she's recently opened uh, the Makery. Can we find any of your prints there? Uh, yes, so yeah, the, yes. Um, so the make, yeah, my wife opened a shop on Dunbar High Street, um, where we live, a month ago. First time in retail. She's been selling in other places uh, for the last few years, but yeah, she's super talented graphic designer and artist and jewelry maker. Uh, and we'd basically run out of space in the house, so I'm in fact, you know, I'm in fact, I'm sitting here in a room surrounded by boxes of stuff still, um, we still which we still haven't moved into the into the shop. Um, but it's kind of it's given us it's it's given Emma and, and, and myself a space to to do stuff in and yeah I sell a couple of bits and pieces in there um which you know I, I have been astonished that some people have actually bought 
<laughs> yeah, that's a, it's all that's all very new, and uh, and Emma's doing a, an amazing job. It's just the fact that she's taking that leap into retail is um, I'm full of admiration for her. So because uh, it's not a, it's not an easy it's not an easy game retail, um, and it's not no. and it's not an easy time economically for a new retail store to open. But the yeah, the response has been really positive so far. So I'm I'm kind of hoping that will continue to be a success for her. Yeah, I mean, it's not an easy time in, in you know, big high streets, let alone, um, and I say this having never been to Dunbar, but what I understand is the footfall on Dunbar's high street is probably far less than it is in the big retail areas that are, that are you know, struggling. It's not Oxford Street, that's for sure. <laughs> well, not yet. <laughs> um, so we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to the makery on the episode page because um, I browse some of the um, okay. paper oh. cut and there's all sorts of stunning things there. So I think I think most of our listeners, if not all, have a similar interest in design of, of all sorts of forms and guises. So we'll, we'll stick a link in there and I, I recommend everyone that. listening to, to at least check it out. And then aside from that, you have a significant love of music. Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite into my music. I've, uh, I, still, I still have a, re- I still have a, you know, a semi-regular um, night that I play at. Um, so, yeah. What do you play? What do I play? I, I play well. Kind of at the moment, um, it's mostly funk, soul, and disco. Uh, although I still, I still occasionally get sucked back in and play some house, but um, and a bit of after, <laughs> a bit of after beats, but yeah, but basically anything that'll move feet. Um, I'm kind of, I just, I like. It's just one of the best feelings in the world is to is to play a song and watch people dance. Um, you know, the, getting a reaction to the th- the music you're playing is still one of the most amazing feelings you can possibly have. It's when you see a room going off to music you're playing, it's just like, oh, it totally feels amazing. So yeah, music's yeah. music's still a big thing. It has been for a long time. I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I wasn't a, a DJ for in my early years, of relatively late to it. But once you start, it's it's really hard to um, hard to give up. Yeah, but it's using your hands again. Well, it is. It's, it is that, and I think you know, music's such a primal, fundamental part of being human. I think um, it's mm. a it's a really important thing. Music. Um, and it's a real, it's a, it's a thing that can really bring people together. So watching a, you know, watching a group of strangers come together on a dance floor, dancing to the music you're playing is a, is a joyful thing to see. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally into that. I've, I've very limited experience of that, but it is something I'd quite like to revisit if my, um, uh, if I can address my lack of talent. I don't let, don't let that stop. Yeah, I haven't. So. No. <laughs> so I've got a couple of um, questions in that I'd like to put to you. The first one actually is, is is alongside the play theme so we're avoiding work for number one it comes from a copywriter called mark and he's asked what's a more satisfying smell the smell of fresh paint or the smell of the sea Ooh, it kind of depends do you know there's a i i um i, I would swap paint for ink um i'm just I, I love the smell of ink i'm using i'm using rubber-based inks at the moment and they smell amazing um in my print work so uh, that's I, I i love that but i live by the sea i can smell the sea from my front doorstep um and there's something i don't know like the sea is such an amazing thing so powerful and, and so calming and it just puts everything in perspective so I, I, it's a i like to walk I like, I like to walk along the shore and smell the sea and then do a bit of printing with some ink so i'm not that's not a very good answer is it i haven't I've, I've, yeah i need to push you off that I've got binary again i have to say it's both and right it's not it's not either yeah there's, there's clearly there's wonderful things about both yeah okay well, well second we'll go to the second question then so it's actually from me again this week i'm, I'm being very selfish as i've listened back to previous episodes of, as i mentioned to you pre-recording i've noticed that i have a tendency aside from being a an aging moany bastard to focus on negatives around our industry 
I guess, I don't know, I guess because I want to try and fix them or I want everyone to take note and try and fix them. So can you tell me one thing that we can all be really positive about in marketing? Because it, it might cheer me up. <laughs> Pregnant pause here. The, um, do, you know, do you know what I, 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 I feel, I think for the first time in quite a while, that, um, and this might just be because of the, you know, the, the Twitter chat I'm seeing at the moment, but there is a, there does feel like there's a bit of a sea change in that attitude. That there are actually there are a lot of people out there trying to move beyond that negativity, people trying to find a better way, um, and starting to, you know, starting to explore um, ways of not. For, I mean, definitely not forgetting the past because I think that's that's been a, that's been a, a criticism I would level at, at the industry. It's been terrible at um looking to its past for inspiration for the future but um but actually not just being down into the into the mud and going this is all shit um and we can't fix it there's actually that actually does feel as if there's a real impetus behind people um looking for better solutions and looking for ways to make this a better industry to work in an Mm -hmm. industry that creates better work um, an industry that has meaning and purpose again in a way that it that it once did, uh, because I, I, I do I do I agree. I think it, it had it had lost its way. I think a little, um, certainly lost its confidence, um, and I think it does it does certainly feel that the, the chatter now is much is much more around the okay yeah okay let's 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 we accept that, but bitching about it isn't going to make it better. Um, doing stuff about it is going to make it better. So it's encouraging to hear, you know, um, people who are, yeah, I, I won't take aging off of you, but, um, but people, people, people who, are, who are who are really keen to see what comes next. Um, but what comes next on uh, grounded in what came before. Um, so let's not throw the baby out of the bathwater, um, but let's get back to, to, to the things that are really important. Uh, and, and that is, you know, that's ideas, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah, it is. It is that that's that has cheered me up. Thank, <laughs> thank you. I think the um, I think one of the biggest things is the how much creativity and the idea, as you just said, has had been devalued as a consequence of many, many things. There's all sorts of variables at play here, but due to numerous people, I immediately think of Bennett and Field and a few other few other greats who were who were doing sterling work. You're right. There has been a shift in people understanding and putting value back to the idea and the creativity because it's one of the other posters we've got up here is is it, it's one of the you know the last unfair advantages you can have in, in in business so um and that was lost perhaps but it's coming back and that's a good thing yeah exactly yeah and the final part of the interview murray is we have our four pertinent poses which we put to all of our guests so what advice would you give to your younger self think I would probably advise myself to spend more time understanding myself. Um, I think the true self-awareness, properly understanding you and what makes you tick and what, what motivates you is the key to getting everything you really need and want in life. Um, and I didn't spend, I spent a lot of time hiding from myself when I was younger, hiding from the things that I was scared of or that frightened me or that um, you know made me unhappy. And I think you've got to, you've got to face up to those. So I, yeah, I think that would be my, my, my key piece of advice would be spend more time getting to know yourself uh, and be a bit kinder. <laughs> Number two is if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would that be and why? The bullshit and the lies. Uh, I'm fed up of it. Do you know, the, the, the lasting progress only ever comes uh, from being honest. You, you have to start from a place of honesty, total transparent honesty. And the sooner we can get 
that, the better. Um, because there's just too much yeah. bollocks being talked. Um, people, I mean, I mean flat out lying happening. Um, and those people need to be exposed. Uh, and we need to, to get back to uh, truthful conversations. Yeah, I think that's actually hit the nail on the head in terms of what I found so refreshing about the recent Bob Hoffman article was that an agency is a collection of people. And with that combined logic and intelligence, you can solve problems, but you can't be sure that something will or won't work necessarily. You can just tap into the minds and experience that they collectively have. Whereas, understandably, you want someone to be able to guarantee. So there's people out there guaranteeing something with work. You can understand why people sway towards that person. But it's so flawed, it can't possibly be right because there's, as we've said, human beings are complex, the industry is complex, brands are complex, whether you're, you know, from the School of Edinburgh Bass or more, I guess, the Mark Ritson School of Thought, although they're, even those are kind of trending towards each other, you can't, you just, you, you quite simply can't. You've got methods and processes which should ultimately, the process will become the answer, but you don't know what that answer is yet. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think if you know, people are looking for control, but you're, in a, you're, working, you're operating in a chaotic system. It's not possible to control it. And anybody that tells you they can predict what's going to happen in the future is lying. There's just flat out. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, and I think that there's so many moving parts in in a in a brand and in a in a marketing campaign and and you know so many variables out with your control that how how can you possibly know? All you can do is make informed guesses based on the based on the information you have at hand at that point. Yes. You know, and that's and that, you know that's another element of strategies. You know, this is the this is the best guess we can make at the moment. Um, that suggests we should do this and not that. Let's give it a go and see what happens. And then, and then, but it, you know, importantly, learn from that. Did it work? Did it not work? Why did it work? Why did it not work? Um, and that gives you a, a more informed position to work from in the in the future. But yeah, it's that. But you you need to be you need yeah. to be honest about what you really do and really don't know. Yes, we in the episode where I spoke to Ian Pritchard, we plugged the JWT planning guide that was written by Stephen yep. King way back, which no doubt you're very familiar with. And one of my favourite parts of that is the planning cycle, because it is that constant cycle of where are we? How did we get there? Where do we want to go? How are we going to get there? But revisiting that where are we state to just evaluate, has it worked? Has it not worked? What have we learned right now? What are we going to do? And it is that constant rather than this is the answer, full stop, that's the end. It is that constant. But I'm sounding negative again. Cheer up. <laughs> Let's talk about books. I really like books. So what books would you recommend to everyone listening? Um, read more sci-fi. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. 100% read more sci-fi. I think they're like, you know, everybody's reading business books, right? And we've talked about the, the, the issues with business books. And, and in fact, I mean, that's even if you can find a good one that isn't just 10, 10, a 10 minute blog post expanded into um, something they can sell. Um, but sci-fi is basically narrative philosophy, I think. It's imagining what the world could be like if, um, and and I think the the beauty of sci-fi is it takes it takes it takes situations out of your known um, environment and creates a, a a space where people can play with ideas. Um, and and I, I, I I mean I'm, I'm a massive fan of sci-fi, and if I and I think especially um, and a fellow Scotsman uh, and sadly missed, but Ian M. Banks's culture series. Is probably the for me is probably for me that is the gold standard. It is, it is beautifully imagined. It is thrilling to read, um, and it is full of massive ideas. Um, and and I think that you know as we talked about getting the industry back into ideas, let's let's read books that are that are full of big ideas. Excellent. 
I'm really pleased you said that actually, because I was wary that the same name has typically come up, but that certainly hasn't come up yet. So that's really, that's great. Lastly, then Murray, we always dedicate every show to someone and we bestow or hospital pass, depending on your point of view, that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. I'd like to do because the guy who got me into marketing, um, I was very, very fortunate early in my career to have somebody who took a chance on me and, and gave me an opportunity to work in this amazing, frustrating, fascinating, awesome industry. Uh, and that's a guy called Robin Lambie, who was the marketing director at McAllen Lang's partnership. And then uh, at the McAllen Glenwood PLC, the first guy to really give me a proper chance. And, you know, uh, to him and to everybody who came after him, who continued to give me chances. So yeah, yeah, thank you, Robin. Brilliant. Thank you. So as a final call to action, head over to this episode online via calltoaction.co. We've shared links to everything discussed in the last hour. How else can people get more Murray Calder? Oh, do they really want any? Um, <laughs> they, they, can get me on, they can get me on Twitter. So I'm, I'm at Scott Strat Guy on Twitter. Um, you'll find me on LinkedIn, um, at the usual places. Um, and um, the Makery Dunbar on Instagram uh, is where um, I occasionally post some prints, but mostly my wife's work. So. Fantastic. Well, we'll link to all of that. Great, thank you. So uh, thank you so much, Murray, for joining us. It's been fantastic. It's been refreshing. It's been new and it's been different and I've loved it. So thank you for giving us your time. No, you're very welcome, Charles. It's been a pleasure to be on your show and thanks for asking. And, and thanks for everyone who continues to listen and support us here. Please do continue to get in touch with questions to put to our guests and, and feedback and anything else you want to share simply by emailing us at hello at calltoaction.co Yeah!